Amen. Amen. So good. How about that song, huh? Wow. Wow. So good. I thought Donald was going to start dancing back there for a minute there. On that bass. Come on, sir. Oh, that's good. So good. So good. Hey, while we were worshiping, I just had such a sense that for somebody here was that you're, whether you're online or whether you're in the room, that you've been wrestling with this feeling that your relationship with God has been lackluster. That's the word I'm going to use because I feel like that's the word that you've used in your prayer, whoever you are. But Vanessa and I are going to celebrate our, our 24th wedding anniversary on Monday. 24 years, come on. Now I know what you're thinking. We look too young to have been married for 24 years, right? We're just a, a year away from a quarter century. But we talk sometimes about how grateful we are that in our life and in our marriage that we, we truly do love each other more today than we did 24 years ago. As hard as it would have been for us to fathom, if you had said to us 24 years, you're going to love it, because we loved each other so much 24 years ago, we would have said, that's impossible. But yet here we are, and it's true. And the reason for that is because over these 24 years that we've not just been acquaintances, we've not just been roommates, we've not just been partners in life, we have built a life together with one another. Building memories, being vulnerable and transparent with our emotions and our hopes and dreams and aspirations. We, we have, we've, we've poured our lives out for each other with one another for almost a quarter century. The reason why we love each other more today than we did 24 years ago is because of the life that we've invested in between. And this is what I feel like that God wanted to encourage someone. If, if you want to be more in love with him, then he's got to become more than just an acquaintance to you. If, if, if you want this feeling of him being the lover of your soul, then he can't just be an intellectual idea and a doctrinal belief for you. And it's what you do day to day between this day and the next 24 years that will determine the outcome of your felt experience with him. Because can we just agree, he's already doing everything he's supposed to do because he's perfect. So if you're feeling in some way, in some sense, that your relationship with God is just lackluster, then my encouragement to you is that you've got to pursue him like he is the perfect father that he longs to be for you. You've got to put the time in. You've got to open up your heart. You've got to talk with him. You've got to cry with him. You've got to laugh with him. You've got to find those private moments where it's just you and him together. And I'm telling you, something will turn in your heart. And you'll begin to know him as the lover of your soul. Father, I pray for whoever that's for tonight. I pray for that person that's here that's frustrated that their relationship with you is, is just has become lackluster. And I pray that they would begin to pour their life out into a relationship with you as, as if, as if.
It were a marriage that has swept them off their feet and they've fallen in love with the person of their dreams. We know, God, that you have given these hearts that we have the capacity to love deeply and we know, God, that that's not just for one another. It's also for you. And I pray that the person here tonight who's not yet to discover that, that something in this service would spark a flame, would awaken something inside of them. In Jesus' name, come on, and everybody said together, amen. Well, we are in this series together, Shema, Hebrew word for hear and obey. In the Hebrew language, there are not two separate words for hear and obey. It's two sides of the same coin. And the phrase that we are using is, I want the reflex of my heart to be one of obedience to God. I, when, when, when I feel or when I hear God is speaking to me, whether it's in a time of prayer, a time of worship, whether it's in reading God's word, I want my impulse, I want my reflex to be yes and to follow in obedience. Every week we've been throwing up this this graph, this chart of sorts about rebellious, reluctant, and reflexive, this speaks to all the different areas of our lives. None of us are only these, just one of these, all the time. All of us have some areas of our life where we are reflexively obedient to God. All of us have some areas of our life where we're reluctant, and all of us have some areas of our life where we are rebellious. One of the measures of spiritual maturity is to moving those things in our life where we're rebellious, let's at least get them to a place of reluctance and let's then move from reluctance to reflexive. It's a lifelong journey. And I believe that one of the ways that that will happen for you and for I is if, as, as we undergo these five conversions of the soul. Now, if you're seeing that for the first time, you should go back to the first message in this series called Reflex where we talk about these in great length. And then each week, we're giving some attention to each one individually. Conversion simply means to change. I'm going to be talking a little bit how we change and how change comes. But I wanted to recap them because we've not read them, all five of them together by way of a definition. So I'm just going to read them again. I'm not going to teach on or talk about until we get to the last one, which is going to be the topic of our message tonight. But the first one is effective conversion. Effective conversion. It happens when a person takes personal responsibility for his or her emotional healing and development. That's an effective conversion. Lifelong journey. There's a little phrase at the bottom of each one of these slides. You'll see right there, covenant community again. The message where we introduce these, I go into greater detail for what that means. Intellectual conversion, that was last week. Involves taking responsibility for the truth or falsity of one's beliefs by examining and testing them. Lifelong journey. Moral conversion means being responsible to cultivate habits that embody the moral virtues one has embraced and to live according to a broader social responsibility. That's where we're headed in a couple of weeks. Religious conversion, Pastor Justin did this one for us, amazing job. Religious conversion begins by making a vow of devotion to Jesus and confessing Jesus' right to have authority over every aspect of our lives. There's an asterisk there because that's our definition of religious conversion. These are based on teachings by a Jesuit priest by the name of Don Gelpie. I've adopted his other definitions except for that one. That one I had to change a little bit to match our theology. 
Sociopolitical conversion, which is the one we're going to be talking about tonight, involves accepting responsibility to seek the good for all humans and to work strategically with others to challenge and convert the wider world as well. And when we say convert the wider, wider world, we're not talking about converting them religiously. We're talking about converting them sociopolitically. Do we believe in a religious conversion? Yes, we do. And Pastor Justin taught on that. Do we believe that we're tasked now to go out with the gospel so other people can have a religious conversion? Yes, we do. It's called evangelism. But there's also this idea of our, as we go through these individual conversions for ourselves, are we becoming a change agent in the world around us for each of these five? See, for effective conversion, for example, as people begin to see me deal with my hurts from my past and heal from them, it gives other people permission and courage to begin to tackle the trauma of their yesterday. Socio-political conversion. Now, don't get nervous. You hear the word politics in church, right? You just tense up. I get it. But socio-political is not talking about changing the way that you vote or trying to change your mind about social issues. If you do need to change your mind on those things, that's intellectual conversion. That's what we talked about last week. Social political conversion is about you shifting from a me mindset in life to a we mindset in life. And this one, as with all of them, conversion, it takes time. Luke 24 13 to 18, and then I'm going to jump to 28 to 35. It's just too much of a chunk of of a text for the sake of time. But this is the road to Emmaus, post-resurrection of Christ. It says, that same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. And as they walked along... They were talking about everything that had happened, right? His, his trial, his death, his resurrection. And as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them, but God kept them from recognizing him. So for them, which was common because people pretty much walked everywhere 2,000 years ago, unless you were a person of great wealth and means, and, and people would find themselves walking together. They would just find a sense of community on the journey as they would travel. But they didn't recognize that this was the risen Christ. And he asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces, and then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. Now I'm going to jump down to verse 28. The rest of that text, you should read it if you haven't, is the conversation they have with each other. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. And as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it, and then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were open and they recognized him, and at that moment, he disappears. Come on, stop it. Some crazy stuff in here. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? God wants you to have that kind of experience when you open up this book for your heart to burn. And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. They were like, we can't stay here. We need to go tell everyone what's happened to us. There they found the 11 disciples and the others who had gathered 
with them who said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter and they began to share their stories of post-resurrection encounters. I'm just going to give you these. They aren't going to appear on the screen, but you can always download these notes from our website. One of the, the first one is this. I want to tell you is that conver- conversion is often gradual. It's often gradual. We, we read in the book of Acts where Paul has this dramatic conversion experience where he's just, he's a different person in a moment. That's, not, that's the exception. That's the exception. The norm throughout Scripture and then through our own lives is it just, it takes time for people to change. I think that's one of the reasons why we're given the story of the road to Emmaus is that as Jesus is walking with them, that at first they, they didn't even know it was him. And now it says that God kind of, kind of obstructed their ability to recognize that was him. And I think the reason for that is because God's trying to create a prophetic picture of what change is like for us. It takes time. It's a journey. Right? We're, we're in a hurry so much of our lives. And if we're not careful, we'll get, we'll get in a hurry with our conversion and we'll get frustrated and we'll give up. It's a journey. Conversion necessitates community. I love that in no part of the story do you ever find any of these people by themselves because conversion, all five of these that we're talking about, will not take place alone and in isolation. We need other people to challenge us, to encourage us. I, I like this idea that Jesus was, was, was walking along the road, which would have been their practice, that, that he would have seen that they were impassioned in this conversation, and, 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 and it would have been commonplace for them to have other people come because they would have recognized this passion that they're sharing with each other. This is part of the conversion experience, too is that as we're talking about this journey that we're on with Jesus and as he's changing us, other people should be drawn into the conversation because they see the passion of our own hearts. Conversion relies on Jesus' truth. You cannot change without the truth of Christ, the truth of his word and the truth of his teaching. Conversion starts with me and conversion moves to us. Conversion starts with me. I have to start with me. If you're starting your journey of conversion by trying to fix everyone else, even if you were to succeed, you would ultimately fail because then you're going to make everybody else like your broken self. Conversion starts with us and then it moves to others. They had to change. Something shifted in them and then they began to go and tell others. It's gradual. It necessitates community. It relies on Jesus' truth. It starts with me and it moves to us. At some point, we should become a change agent. Let me read you this definition again. A social, socio-political conversion involves accepting responsibility to seek the good for all humans and to work strategically with others to challenge and convert the wider world as well. Social and political are the terms we're using here, not because we're talking about changing the way that we think about society and politics. I'm going to say it again. Social political conversion is about shifting my mindset away from only me to always we. From only me to always we. Do sometimes you have to think about yourself? Sure you are. Are you responsible for asking the question, what's in your best interest? Absolutely. Otherwise, we shift into trying to replay the monastic movement, which was an absolute failure. God isn't saying to us, never consider what's best for you. But he's saying is you can't stop there. And then if you really want to understand what's best for you, you will never fully understand that question until you begin to ask it within the context of what's better 
for everyone else. So I'm coming at you today on this Memorial Day weekend. Have we embraced an American dream at the expense of displacing and supplanting a superior biblical narrative? Have we embraced an American dream at the expense of displacing and supplanting a superior biblical narrative? Let's talk about Abraham. Genesis 12, one through three reads this way. The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, I will make you famous and you will be a blessing to others. It's important that we understand that there's two parts to this verse. It doesn't just say, I will bless you and make you famous, period. It says, I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to other people. Listen to what it says. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Now, we understand, in part, this is speaking that from Abraham and the birthing of a nation that Jesus is going to come, the Savior of the world. Now, we understand that, the prophetic, prophetic significance of these verses but this is also God establishing the culture of the kingdom of heaven. That we are blessed and favored so that we can be a blessing to other people. I found this definition of the American dream, which I feel for me, when I think about the American dream, encapsulates what I think of. It's the ideal by which equality of opportunity is available to any American, allowing the highest aspirations and goals to be achieved. That's a great definition, isn't it? Now, if we had time, maybe we would tweak it here, add some things there, but I think for the most part, that does a really good job of articulating what we think of when we talk about the American dream. Now, I'm for this dream. I don't want you to think that I'm not. I believe in this dream. I'm proud of this dream. I'm, I'm proud that this is part what it means to be an American is to believe in this, to believe that it could be attainable by all people. There was a poem on the Statue of Liberty called The New Colossus. It was written in 1883 by Emma Lazarus. It says, not like the brazen giants of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land, here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand. A mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name. Mothers of exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome, her mild eyes command. The air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she. With silent lips, give me, here it comes, this is the one we know most. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Listen to how it ends. It's so powerful. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these. Send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Come on. How does that not stir your heart? It certainly does mine. 
the American dream. But what we find in Scripture is something called the Abrahamic covenant. And this is my definition of the Abrahamic covenant. It says, unmerited divine favor is bestowed upon the recipient for the purpose of blessing and serving others in the name of Jesus. I want to read that again. Unmerited divine favor is bestowed upon the recipient for the purpose of blessing and serving others in the name of Jesus. I would argue if you don't understand the nature of the Abrahamic covenant, you really don't even understand the nature of the American dream. Because if you're not careful, both will just become about you and what's your benefit, even if it's always at the expense of other people. Galatians 3.29 reads this way, and now that you belong to Christ, right? Those of us who have made a vow of devotion to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. Stop it. Oh, let me read it to you again. Because this promise is a big promise. Listen to what he says. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Wow. Heirs according to promise. Now, your fame might not ascend to Abraham's fame. Your riches and wealth might not ascend to Abraham's riches and wealth. But the promise is still the same. Is that God wants to give you influence in this world, not for you to be exalted, but to give you a voice to exalt him. And and he wants to give you blessing, and he wants to give you favor, he, he wants to, to posture you and material and, and, and position you in a place even materially in this world so that you can use those material resources, not just for your own enjoyment, that's part of the human experience, but not just for that, but so that you can use those material resources and begin to invest them in a world to build God's kingdom. Genesis 15 8 through 12, and then I'm going to read 17 to 18a. It says, But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? And the Lord told him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. So Abram presented, his name hasn't been changed to Abraham yet, so Abram presented all these to him, and he killed them. Right? The Old Testament, it's a bloody book. He cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. And he made an aisle. This is what he does. So half of the carcass of each animal, and then there's an aisle down the middle. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. And the sun was going down, and Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a terrifying darkness came over him. Jumping down to verse 17, and after the sun went down, a darkness fell, and Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the halves of the carcasses, so the Lord made a covenant with Abraham that day. You might be saying, how does that correlate to the other? How, why, what, is, what about that forms a covenant? And the reason is because in Abram's day, 
If a lesser king were to make a vow to a greater king, they would literally take animals, they would cut them in half, and they would lay half of the carcass on each side, and they would walk between these animals as they're making their vow or their promise to the greater king, the lesser to the greater, and they would say, if I violate this covenant, may it be unto me what I have done to these animals. You thought refinancing your house and just sitting with a closing document and signing was hard, right? There were rituals in ancient times that had depth of meaning and significance to them that we've lost in our modern society. And I'm not saying we should go back to this, but we should understand this. Because see what God did, he's the greater and Abraham is the lesser, And when the torch and the smoking pot pass between, these are prophetic imageries of God himself in his sovereignty, in his kingship. He was saying to Abram, I know that humanity is going to violate this covenant, but what I want you to know is that I'm going to have what's been done to these carcasses done to me to save the covenant we have with each other. And that's Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago. Everything about the kingdom of heaven is about asking the question, how can I serve my fellow man? If our deity, if our creator, if our father postures himself in a way of serving the undeserved, that's you and me, how much more should we? How much more should we? It's interesting as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you find in Matthew 5, 21, 27, 31, 33, 38, and 43, Jesus constantly repeats this phrase. You have heard that it was said, fill in the blank with whatever the teaching is, but I say to you, and then fill in the blank. Because Jesus understands that if change is going to come, he's got to begin to break down the false thinking of our humanity so there can be a breakthrough so that we can begin to think according to Christ as we talked about last week with the mind of Christ. We have both the mind of Christ and the mind of Adam and sometimes we're stuck with an Adam thought process and and, and Jesus has to come in and begin to break that down so we begin to shift and see the world through the eyes of Christ. Christ breaking us down is hard sometimes. It's hard to let go of ways that we think because for many of us, myself included, the ways that we think have been ingrained in us from birth, from the environments that we've immersed ourselves in. Sometimes it gets to the point where we don't even realize that what we're thinking is the opposite of what God is thinking. And sometimes, sometimes, We're convinced that what we're thinking is actually the way God thinks. Even when we couldn't be more wrong. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, you and I need to embrace this lifelong journey with Jesus, asking him to have that conversation with us as often as we need it. You have heard that it was said as following cultural norms, human experience that begins to formulate truth out of falsehood. And Jesus says, that 
I'm going to have to break that down so there can be a breakthrough for you so that you can begin to think the way that me and the Father and the Spirit think. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Many of you are familiar with this as the Great Commission. It says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given to you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These are some of the most popularized verses in all of Scripture. And they are sacred to us. And we believe in the idea of the Great Commission. We have a responsibility to bring the message of the gospel to the world around us. But I think it's important for us to ask ourselves these three questions. Has an American cultural attitude created a filter over Scripture, especially the Great Commission? Or are we really just bringing the gospel to the world, or are we trying to Americanize the world? Do we see the Great Commission as serving or winning? That's a good one, isn't it? Do you see the Great Commission as a call to serve, or do you see it as a call to win? Are we mistaking Christ's authority over us for our authority over others? See, do, are we taking this idea of the Great Commission and, and moving out into the world and treating others as if we have authority over them as people? Christ has authority over us. And when we come under that authority, you know how you, you can really tell people who have really come under the authority of Christ. Because when we come under the authority of Christ, you know what our heart is? Our heart is to be like Christ with other people. And you know what the Bible says about Jesus? He came not to be served, but to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. Those that are the most under the authority of Christ are going to be those who are willing to give their lives in service to others. I think the more authoritarian we present ourselves to be, is evidence of how little we are under the authority of Christ himself. I read an article not too long ago from the Christian Post. It's a, a news service I subscribe to. And there was an article in there recently. I want to share it just a little bit from you. It says a Presbyterian pastor in Florida criticized the contemporary style of worship, saying that it does not give God the reverence and awe that he deserves during church services. In his speech titled Reformed Doxology, Worship According to Scripture, during the Gospel Reformation Network conference last week, that gives the pastor's name here, David McWilliams, discussed about the importance of scriptural worship, which truly honors God. McWilliams is the senior pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Lakeland, and it goes on to, to give excerpts from his speech. This is my problem with spiritual leaders like this pastor, with respect, it is that He's saying to the rest of Christendom, the way you worship should look exactly like the way that I worship. And that if you really respected and honored God, you would do it the way that I do it. He goes on to call out certain ethnicities. He, he makes a derogatory comment about salsa worship, right? Which he's making a derogatory comment about Latino people and the way that they worship. Can we just appreciate the reality that what God has done through creation is that he has made room for the unique ethnic expression 
that we move in when we step into a place of worship of him. He talks about the use of the Psalter, which is the use of psalms in liturgical ways. He talks about returning to the the traditional hymn book. Now, I think all of that, those are wonderful ways to worship. I grew up in the Episcopal Church. I love to worship those ways. I love to worship the way that we worship. But we have to be careful if we begin to adopt a me orientation to life, which this pastor clearly has, where he is saying, we needs to become just like me. Because what he doesn't even realize is that his preference for worship is based on his white puritanical theological history. What he doesn't realize is what he's accusing these other ethnicities of, that he's the product of that himself. It's just his happened to be more popular because he's the predominant race. When I read this article, I was thinking to myself, I'm not sure he's actually read the book of Psalms. Because if, if, if he really thinks that there should be a cultural dominance to worship, which we don't, it should be Hebraic, not Puritanical American. They should be rocking the shofar every Sunday. Right? When, when, I, read, when I read in Psalms, you know what I find? I find bands. I, I find it's loud. It's prophetic, it's impassioned, people are dancing. That's what I see. Now, is part of that because there was a Jewish cultural expression that informed and instructed their worship? Absolutely it was. I think that was God's way of saying to the world, I'm going to create diverse ethnicities and those diverse ethnicities are gonna bring all kinds of cultural expressions to worship, and all of them can be sacred, and all of them can be glorious if they are Christ-centered, and it's about the glorification of God the Father, empowered by the Spirit. I, I, I read this to you because all of us fall into this trap in some way in different areas of our lives, where we want to make our me the we for everyone. Because we're all vulnerable to that part of our human nature. But I think, and this is part of my confession today, I think part of it is because we have abandoned certain aspects of the Last Supper. Now I'm going to read through the verses of the Last Supper and I'm going to give some commentary as we're in the home stretch here. And I believe because we've forgotten one aspect of this, that we have made room for this me-oriented way of thinking in Christianity. In Jesus' day 2,000 years ago, the Jewish culture is intensely an honor culture, as in keeping with the rest of Middle Eastern culture, and it still very much is today. It's an honor, honor culture. Some of that is healthy, and some of that is born out of classism, which is not good. People had certain places. You, you, you were in a certain class, and, and then you, there, there was no leaving that. And then that class that you were in kind of defines your life. And so as they're moving into the Last Supper, they're moving in this honor culture, but some of them, as you're going to see, especially like Peter, he's, he's trapped in this idea that I am in one class, and because Jesus is my rabbi, he's in another 
John 13, 1 through 5 reads this way. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was the time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table and he took off his robe and he wrapped the towel around his waist. So what we think of as the Last Supper has already happened. The breaking of the bread, the passing of the cup, which was Jesus saying the Passover feast from the beginning, from Exodus until now, has always been a prophetic foretelling of the coming of Christ and how he would die for the sins of the world. All of that we practice, right? It's sacred to us and it should be communion. We do it the first weekend of every month. But that's just half of the Last Supper. It's just half of it. He got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and he poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. See, when we understand who we come from and where we are going after this life, We are no longer afraid to serve others. Jesus knew from whence he came, and he knew where he was going. He knew that he was the son of the father, the savior of the world. His identity was intact. When you know who you are and who you've come from and where you're going, I'm telling you, it frees us to serve other people like never before. We don't feel such a driving need to compete with others. Our identity and security comes from knowing God created us and that heaven waits for us. Let us be that free. John 13, 6 through 11, when Jesus comes to Simon Peter, Peter says, Lord, you're, you're, not, you're gonna wash my feet? Peter's always arguing with Jesus. Don't you love that? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm, I'm doing but someday you will. No, Peter protests, right? It's not too long ago Jesus had to say to Peter, get behind me, Satan, right? This is, this is a great example of conversion takes time. He's still arguing with Jesus. No, Peter protested. You will never wash my feet. Why? Because he's stuck in this idea of classism. And Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. And Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well. Lord, not just my feet, Jesus replied. A person who has bathed all over, listen, does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you you disciples are clean, but not all of you, right? He's referring to Judas, for he knew one would betray him. And that is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. Listen to my commentary here. Jesus saying your feet only is his way of warning against universalism. Jesus is telling us his death will cleanse us of our sin, but we must come to him. That's the significance of the imagery of the feet. The death of Christ is there for the taking of the world freely, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But I've got to move towards him spiritually, and make a vow of devotion to him if that grace is going to be appropriated into my life. 
Jesus is telling us his death will cleanse us of our sin, but we must come to him. Salvation is still by grace, but that grace is not appropriated until I come to him with a vow of my devotion. John 13, 12 through 15. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and he sat down and asked, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right. right this, is, this is where him differentiating between honor and class. You tracking with the story here? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right. He said it's fair to honor him because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Now do as I have done to you. It's fascinating, isn't it? I've been, and I don't know the answer, and I'm not saying I know the answer. But I know that something is missing for us in the church and the world today. And I don't wonder if this isn't part of it. Have we taken communion and elevated it as it should be? As it should be. But is the reason we've elevated it because that's the part of the meal that's about me? and my salvation. It should be elevated. It should be sacred. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, right, until I return. We should do this. But you know what he also said? He said, do this other thing too. Do this other thing too. Why? Because Jesus understood the vulnerability of our humanity to operate in meanness all the time to the degree that we would celebrate this one command because it reminds us of what he's done for us, but we have ignored the latter because it reminds us of what we're supposed to do for one another. I'm not saying I have the answers. But I think there's something about this practice that has to find its way back into the Christian expression of worship. So I was praying this week, I thought to myself, I should just, in this moment, right, the baptistry's completely full. Anchor Church is baptizing, having their first baptisms tomorrow. Come on. <laughs> Pastor Oswaldo, good on you, sir. Five churches using this building. It's exciting stuff, isn't it? We were baptizing people in that tank last week. They're baptizing people this week. I thought to myself, well, that's going to be full. I should just pull out a basin and just dip it in there and just stand here and make people nervous. <laughs> Please don't pick me, right? Oh, I know, yeah. Oh. I know one of the things you loved about COVID is that I have been trapped on this platform for almost a year and a half. Mm -hmm. That's going to change too. Yeah. I'm coming down there. Yeah. And the next time it might be with a basin and a towel and some water. We are in love with communion because Jesus is easy to love people. And we easily celebrate what we gain from his death. But we neglect washing the feet of others because people are often unlovable. I know that I am. For 24 years. And we don't easily celebrate putting the needs of others ahead of our own. We do not. How would we be different 
I think about just my own journey and my own life. The band can come back up. Think about my own life and my own journey. When I made a vow of devotion to Christ in December of 1990, when Jesus found me in all of my lostness. 1990. And here we are in 2021, right? That's 31 years if my math is right. And I've been wrestling this week of how different would I be if I had washed feet as much as I took communion for 31 years? How different would I be? How different would you be? How different would we be if we had washed feet just half the number of times that we've taken communion? Just half. How would we be different? What relationships would still be intact? What forgiveness would have come a lot easier? What brokenness would have healed a lot sooner? What would have happened if we had practiced the latter as much as we practice the former? Stand with me. And I think one of the reasons why we don't is because we are dead, stopped, stuck in traffic like a holiday weekend at the HRBT with our socio-political conversion. We love us some me, not so much the we. And for all of us, that's got to change. Father, as we step into this moment of worship, I pray that you would even now begin to break down some things inside of us for the breakthrough that you want to see come. Break down, break down the things inside of us for the breakthrough that you want to see come. We want to be a people of the Shema. where there's not such a big gap between hearing and obeying. We want the reflex of our heart to be, yes, Lord, and run after it. Help us, Lord, to not just be a people of the table and the bread and the wine but make us a people of the basin and the towel and the water. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.